This afternoon, I'm joined by Associate Professor Geoffrey Louie, Head of Psychiatry at the ANU, and Dr. Doris Cordes, PhD in Philosophy. And Doris has worked over the last 20 years in the ACT mental health and community sector. Welcome. Thank you, Anya. It's fantastic to be here. And welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Anya. Thanks. Hi, Doris. Thank you for inviting me to be on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeff, for joining us. Today, we're going to be chatting about three key topics. This Saturday, the 10th of October, is World Mental Health Day. We're also going to cover the topic of mental health and COVID-19. And we may also look at the recent recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aged Care specifically. We're starting, Jeff, with a media release that you have in hand. Yes, and I, I wanted to acknowledge Professor David Kopolov, uh, Pro, Pro Vice-Chancellor at Monash University, who sent this to me regarding the Australian Government Budget Announcement and it's entitled Addressing Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. The Australian Government has made mental health and suicide prevention a national priority with an unprecedented $5.7 billion to be spent on mental health in 2020-21. This budget reaffirms this strong commitment to mental health in addition to the significant investment in mental health services provided through telehealth. Our government will double the number of Medicare-funded psychological services from 10 to 20 through the Better Access Initiative in response to the recommendation of the draft Productivity Commission report with an investment of $100.8 million. The government recognises that the 2019-20 bushfires and the COVID-19 pandemic have significantly affected the mental health and well-being of individuals, families and communities. Through this budget, we are continuing to ensure that support is available. We have provided $76 million for mental health support for Australians affected by the bushfire emergency. This includes distress and trauma counselling, additional Medicare subsidised sessions, training and support for frontline emergency personnel, funding for Kids Helpline and Lifeline, and small grants to assist community recovery and connectedness and bolstering of headspace services in fire-affected areas. The government is implementing the largest expansion of the Headspace network to date, with the current network of 124 services to grow to 153 services nationally by 2022. Over the next four years, from 2020 to 21, the government is investing $630.4 million in the national Headspace network. This includes $534.4 million for the establishment of new services and ongoing service delivery at existing services and $96 million to address demand and reduce wait times to access Headspace services. The budget also delivers funding for a number of emergency response measures to support the mental health and well-being of Australians through the COVID-19 pandemic. This includes funding of $74 million to create a new coronavirus mental well-being support line and boost the capacity of key mental health services, $48.1 million to support the national mental health and well-being pandemic response plan, including delivering better data modelling capacity. Recognising the particular difficulties faced by Victorians, we have provided further $12 million to support outreach to young people and secure helpline capacity, with $26.9 million for 15 new head-to-help enhanced mental health clinics and $5 million for additional digital services for vulnerable groups. From August 7, 2020, $7.3 million was provided for 10 additional Medicare subsidised psychological therapy sessions for people subject to further COVID-19 restrictions. Our government continues to work on major reforms that we have for a unified national mental health system. As part of this process, the budget supports the Prime Minister's Suicide Prevention Advisor's initial advice by providing $64.1 million for extension and evaluation of the national suicide prevention trials expansion of aftercare services for those who have self-harmed or attempted suicide and new postvention services to support families and carers who have been bereaved by suicide, youth peer support and support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth through the Pilbara trial and headspace services. And there's a $2.1 million to support a prevention hub, a collaboration with the Black Dog Institute and EveryMind. So quite a lot of announcements of, of funding and I'm happy to make any comments that you'd like uh, regarding that. I'll, I'll, I'll try to send it to you as well so that you've got a copy. 
Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, I've I've had so many media releases myself uh, just since last night, various different organisations, uh, you know, thanking the government for the budget, but a number of groups that have really not received adequate support for their needs, which yep. is disappointing. So there's been quite some criticism of the budget not going quite far enough yeah. and very... Uh, high level of concern from particularly the loss of funding around, I think, job keeper and job seeker funding and the impact that they may have. In particular, there was an article which I had, which was from the 7th of October. It's in the Canberra Times. Financial stress, a key factor in mental health spike as job seeker and job keeper lifelines are shaved. So that was by Sarah Basford Canales just briefly talking about the longitudinal study from the Australian National University revealing rates of clinical depression and anxiety would double the typical population level during March 2020 when the country first entered its initial lockdown. And it it goes on to discuss these issues. So I think there's a lot of concern in the community about mental health and wellbeing and the budget not going quite far enough. And the thing that I've been looking for, Jeff, in particular in light of the World Mental Health Day theme, which is mental health for all, greater investment, greater access, everyone, everywhere. And given our show is focused on multicultural mental health and well-being, is announcements particularly around funding for mental health initiatives for migrant, refugee and multicultural Australians. But so far I haven't seen any analysis from FECA, the Federation of Ethnic Councils of Australia, or Embrace Multicultural Australia. And I've rung a colleague or two and they haven't seen anything either. So I'll hand over to you. Yeah, uh, what's needed at this time is, as you indicated, with mental health, for all, a greater investment across the board, and particularly in, in groups that have currently and on an ongoing basis less access and support. My reading of the government's announcement is an example of, in terms of the funding of resources, um, the Matthew effect, which is for those who have much more shall be given, that uh, there's a very extremely large tranche of funding to be invested in the National Headspace mm. Network and also a significant tranche of funding for increasing Medicare-funded psychological services from 10 to 20 through the Better Access Initiative, which is actually more in line with what, how psychological services were provided previously before a review had cut back the number of sessions that people can access through Medicare with their psychologist on uh, GP or or psychiatrist referral. That sort of investment reflects a more realistic practice base in terms of providing psychological services. However, the funding with relation to the National Headspace Network, I have some concerns about because, again, it's a very heavily funded service. And together with other colleagues, we have raised concern uh, about the outcome measures and efficacy of services that do not sufficiently integrate with overall uh, public mental health services and allow for a more streamlined journey for people through the mental health system. Mm. Yeah. When I was listening to you reading out that media statement, uh, Jeff, I'm just wondering some of those measures that were announced, whether they've got anything to do with the suicide prevention activities that took place last year, you know, under uh, Christine Morgan, you know, who remember when she... Uh, held the Suicide Prevention Summit and, and met Australians across you know, around the country. Yes. Um, it, it sounds a lot, a lot to me, because I attended uh, the summit that was held in Canberra, it sounds a lot to me that the government has at least been listening because some of those measures, and particularly the ones that relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, yes. they do sound really promising, especially some of those suicide prevention trials. That, um, yes. Yeah. And that's the announcement of the $64.1 million for extension and evaluation of the National Suicide Prevention Trials yep. and expansion of aftercare services. Yeah, and that's something that we recommended at the su- summit. So yep. it's from that 
point of view, it's really promising, uh, at least from my perspective. Uh, I was involved with one of the suicide prevention trial sites last year, so I know that it's much needed and will be very much valued. But uh, I completely agree about uh, your comments regarding uh, Headspace, and I know that there's been a little bit of criticism that it mainly targets... uh, a certain population group with mild symptoms and yeah I think uh, it would have been helpful to see that uh, maybe a bit more diverse spending rather than just so much to to headspace because you, you do wonder in terms of the outcomes you know like the outcomes of people who visit headspace yes uh, yes it, the outcome measures are yeah of concern the also, a little bit of concern right at the end of that announcement of the $64.1 million, after mentioning that they would provide support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth through the Pilbara trial, they added and Headspace services. So yes, maybe more money again going to Headspace. My concern is, Jeff, is that we know if you've ever worked in the multicultural space or the Indigenous uh, mental health and community space, yes. we know that, that people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and people from Indigenous backgrounds have better outcomes when they are receiving support and treatment from people who are of their own cultural background. Yes. And when you're talking about headspace, are these headspaces going to be run by Indigenous people? Are they going to offer opportunities for Indigenous clinicians to be employed? Are they offering a a career pathway for people within that community? Are they offering an opportunity for the people within the region to participate in developing models of engagement that actually reflect the real needs and cultural values of those communities? That's my question. So far, as I said, I've seen no announcements about anything to do with multicultural mental health initiatives and there's been a dearth of uh, activity in that space for a really long time, certainly in the space of data collection and identifying need. I'm not sure what Embrace Multicultural Project is doing. Uh, It it certainly has been very silent across the COVID pandemic, leaving it to other other community groups and and in various different states to step up and find solutions to issues around uh, language access and information on COVID for communities. I mean, even SBS has gotten involved in this space and is providing links and information. So when we're talking about world mental health and it being a recognition of there being you know, a theme of greater access for all, I wonder how the budget actually is addressing the greater access for all community members. I mean, particularly when we've seen international students be treated the way that they have been during the pandemic, people on visas who who have struggled, uh, people in ho- hotel detention. There's just silence and we only hear the good news being preached from the pulpit and less about the communities that are the most marginalised and doesn't seem to be anything about homelessness uh, in the budget that I could Yes, and I share your concerns about the the breadth of the response. The context that we're living in with COVID-19 and previously with the bushfire disasters is that there's also an aspect which relates to policy environment and those organisations which are better organised in terms of the existing infrastructure as well as their linkages to government and access to politicians and those with influence are more readily able, as has always been the case, to put forward their case and it can often be difficult for other organisations to representing broader interests to, so to speak, get a seat at the table. Uh, My colleague Professor Steve Allison has written about what Professor Harvey Whiteford described as policy entrepreneurs and it's not necessarily in a negative sense, it's people and organisations that have the wherewithal to be able to present information and proposals to government that they've prepared in advance. And in a crisis, they can be attractive options because they're already ready on the shelf to go. And in one aspect, I think that that with relation to Headspace, because it has that brand identity and has prominent and esteemed 
champions, it does fit that role with policy and entrepreneurship. And so it has been, as can be seen in the budget, very effective in advocating for funding. The difficulty then is groups such as people with culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and as you know, my concern also with older Australians, there isn't much there in terms of the organisation and capacity to be able to lobby and influence government to have these sorts of emergency measures. All the sectors will need support, but there is overall limited funding, and those that are best organised seem to get the Guernseys in this environment, especially with the crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's something that they've been mentioning in the throughout the media today about older Australians are being overlooked, definitely in last night's budget. But, you know, while I've been listening to you, Jeff, I've been thinking how the media takes over the, the discourse about what's needed and, and, uh, and attracts the government's attention. Like last year, this time, it was all about suicide and suicide prevention, and it was regarded as something that of really um, significant national importance. And Christine Morgan had had such a high profile, and and then we had the bushfires, and now it's COVID, and uh, we we still haven't we still got a long way to go to address suicide prevention. So it it seems like a long, long time ago when we had those all those um, discussions around Australia about what people thought would help address suicide. Doris, the worry for me is that really, even with our local regional plan that I sent you a copy of that document, the yes. Mental Health and yep. Suicide Prevention Plan, it's blithely got in there two little paragraphs about Indigenous communities and multicultural communities and then there's another one about LGTBIQ+. Plus, there's going to be a presentation, I think it's next week, run by some organisations that have been involved in it. And I was shocked that none of these other voices of the marginalised groups are asked to participate and provide a voice into how they are going to be engaged. It is just unbelievable. We see it over and over again. And Jerry Georgatos, Jerry's the National Coordinator for the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. Jerry said to me earlier this year when I interviewed him about suicide prevention and recovery and homelessness, and, and he said, people of multicultural background, we're not at the table. We're not at the table nationally. We're not at the table. How can we have our voices heard if we're not invited to participate at the table? And this is the same thing. We see it nationally. We see it locally. And it is really disturbing and I mean when we're talking about suicide prevention and mental health and well-being we're only talking about the white people for those people who aren't being invited to come around the table and put forward their voices or even if they don't want to come to that big table even if there was a smaller table to gather their ideas and their thoughts and their voices maybe they need a completely different strategy and the same with the indigenous communities why isn't that happening i can't understand it we're in nearly at the end of 2020 which has been the most challenging year and surely the opportunity to be innovative and think of new ways and they're not really new ways actually it's just good community development practice to get people involved and actually really welcome all of the people as it says for World Mental Health Day, great access for all, for all the people, rather than just saying, well, we're just going to speak to these people over here that we've funded because they're our preferred persons. They're our preferred groups, which is, I think, what you're saying, Jeff. They're the ones with the loudest voices, with the runs yep. on the board. And yet, you know, when, oh, recently I replayed an interview that uh, we did back in August 2012 on workplace bullying. And as I was listening to that and David Lovegrove talking enthusiastically about the Beacon Project and the work that had been done at the Adult Mental Health Unit at Canberra Hospital uh, and how it had actually reduced seclusions and restraints with consumer and carer participation on that committee alongside nurses and staff and clinicians. Then we were the... We were the wonder of the country at the reduced rates of seclusion and restraint. And yet, in the past eight years, that's gone. And we don't have that happening. And now we've got higher rates of seclusion and restraint. It's gone backwards, the sector. And I, I suppose 
it just was glaringly obvious listening back to that and uh, that, that how we are here now, we should be moving forward, but we're actually going backwards and we seem to have a lot of big, since NDIS came to town, that we have all these big organisations that have come in and co-opted the space where there were smaller organisations that had sprung up from the need in the community and were addressing specific needs of community members and were almost like woven into the the fabric of connection uh, in our mental health and community sector. And I feel like those linkages are gone and we've just got, you know, the big one-stop shop, but people are still suffering. I agree, Anya. I've described it in previous writing with colleagues as some of these organisations could be regarded as some form of leviathan. They're very large, essentially publicly funded through government disbursement NGOs such as Headspace, uh, Beyond Blue, uh, that have access to the policy makers, present well thought through programs from their perspectives and therefore have that access and in practice seem to be the mechanisms by which the Commonwealth Government seeks to address the general shortfalls in the mental health system. They offer, as my colleague Steve Allison has noted, they offer these policy entrepreneur solutions that are attractive to policy makers because they're packaged and they're visible, plus also, and to give them due credit, the people involved in these organisations are eminent and well-respected mental health professionals. However, as you said, they don't represent the breadth of the community. And of course, the organizations themselves have their own structures, aims, and they don't always, nor should we necessarily expect them, to coincide with those of the general community and the grassroots NGO and community wishes. So what we'd argued through through the AMA is that there should be adequate staffing and resourcing at the severe end, when we, we're needing to assist people with severe mental illness, that we've lost funding effectively over the years with each year for adequacy of public sector mental health services across the lifespan. And it's clear from discussions with people and the community that we need more streamlined and accessible care pathways from mobile and acute care right through to inpatient rehabilitation and long-term community care with those suffering with chronic and severe mental illnesses away from an episodic approach. And that requires vertically and functionally integrated services rather than separate standalone uh, bespoke services, which, however significant, don't directly articulate with the services. And we, we've really been concerned about creation of separate and siloed and duplicated Commonwealth-funded parallel NGO health services that as far as in terms of evidence base of outcome measures, there is a lack of evidence. Yeah. And they may cause delay of access of access to expert public and private mental health services. Uh, and the resources for such organizations should better be redistributed and integrated. That's not to say that governance at both the Commonwealth and the state and territory level do- it doesn't need review. But it's still important that we try to consolidate the services and also certainly the AMA support, ongoing support with JobSeeker and JobKeeper because of the issues that might arise in relation to ongoing economic troubles and unemployment Mm. affecting mental health. You know, I have to say, Jeff, I was looking for a job before all of this hit the fan, but people like myself who are older and who are living with a disability... Uh, we're not even included in the statistics of those who were seeking work. There was really very little help for people who are in that space to help them step up and get employment even before other people lost their jobs and, and obviously need support. And I know how it's made me feel to be a, a person who is seeking a job and going for interviews and just not kind of making the grade you go home and you feel terrible but when the COVID came there was a sort of sense I had a sense of relief actually oh now I'm going to be one of the multitude of people who are unemployed but then that doesn't last with you very long because the the thing is you want to be out there you want to be employed 
and feeling like you're contributing to society, having a meaningful existence, even in the budget, they're really, there's really not enough support. And I just wonder whether or not those who are making these decisions really understand the serious effects that are being had on the well-being of people from the situation we find ourselves in. We had a, a fragmented sector before this, but now it's even 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 more challenging. And I know that they've put more money into telehealth and, and so on, but not necessarily for people from multicultural backgrounds. It's It seems as if the, the need is greater than what's available and even what's going to be available. Yes, yes, and the, the, the funding shortfalls and the need for effective resourcing was already there before COVID. And with COVID-19, it's brought to the surface ongoing problems with the deficiencies of the existing services because as a result of longer-term under-resourcing, but also varying levels of coherency of design of, of public and, to some extent, private mental health services and how they work together and has not been well coordinated because there are all these different levels of organization with, with the Commonwealth funding uh, NGOs and also dispersing the funding to the states to allocate funding for mental health provision in the public sector. And the Commonwealth also funding psychiatrists, psychologists and GP consultations through Medicare. And there isn't a sense that any of those things is really coordinated. And to do so, you would need to get people from a broad spectrum of healthcare provision and essentially also the community. Both people with mental with a mental illness and carers are needed to be there to really have full representation to to get a comprehensive design of a system. And that's that's one of the ongoing challenges that we face because it's under resourced. People are struggling people with mental with a mental illness struggling in their day to day life and resources are still very strained in order to provide care uh, to them because we lack adequacy of staffing infrastructure and access to other community support services, you know, should we even get started about the NDIS? <laughs> Let's not. But um, it's, it's a major issue and, and that the large amounts of funding are going to these very large NGOs, but some of the grassroots NGOs that were providing services prior to NDIS have also been disbanded and it's left a wasteland. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's because of these introduction, these large lobbying groups into the environment where resources are very stretched and it's difficult to see a way forward if we don't get broader representation. But that has to come with actual with action. Uh, we've spoken so many over the nearly the last decade about why action isn't occurring. But it's partly because of all this uh, fracturing of of services, but also in a sense these organisations that have a significant voice and. I'll use this word advisedly, but representing potential special interests because of the way that the organization views itself and its target. And, of course, they argue justly for the resources for those people they view as their constituency in terms of those people with mental health needs. But that doesn't always take into account the broader environment. Mm -hmm. And the nature of such organizations is that they grow in size and they become potentially monolithic, which is why we turned them in a relatively controversial article, Leviathans. Hmm. Yeah, my sense is that the community has withdrawn and even in the ACT, I have a sense that community has withdrawn into, uh, into these organisations that are funded and that, that it's not the space that it once was where, and you know, it's even harder with consumers expected to participate in, in conversations about various different uh, proposals and projects. 
via Zoom. Not everybody's got access to Zoom. And many of the people who used to participate or were drawn into having a discussion about their needs are now on NDIS packages and out going to the shops and going to the war memorial or whatever on little day trips with their support workers and they're not engaged. Their voices are not actually engaged into the discussion. They've, they're having their recovery and being supported in that, but they're there. They're not, their voice is just not being included. And I think that that's a problem, but um, I just have this sense that the community space is vacated and it's, it's, you have to go and knock on the door of an organisation and you've got to also be, it, it's, you can't be seen to be dissenting from those who are, have the influence. If you are there saying, hey, I'm a bit concerned about X, Y and Z, well, then you won't be let in and to have a seat around the table because they don't, the, these groups don't want voices that dissent. They want voices that are polite and in agreement with their perspective because all the outcomes from my recent experience in the last... 18 or so months are ones that are consulted on but that are already got predetermined outcomes and it's all very tokenistic ticker box there's uh, very little real genuine co-design and co-production being done which uh, sort of reminds me of that document that I've referred to the regional plan which has got the paragraph, which I probably could have written myself when I worked for Mental Health in Multicultural Australia. And, you know, where is the consultation with multicultural communities about how they want to be engaged or whether they actually do want to be engaged? So I'm uh, feeling quite concerned and I suppose disillusioned about what's happening in our sector. Doris. Yeah, just listening to you, Anya, because we met 20 years ago at the Mental Health Consumer Network and I'm just wondering about the the meaning of community and the sense of community, how that's changed from back then 20 years ago to now, you know, after the NDIS has rolled out in Canberra. Mm. Um, what does community mean today? Yeah, uh, I think it's a good question, Doris. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's something to I think is very thought provoking because mm. uh, organisations have been defunded, um, small organisations, or they've had to amalgamate with others to remain viable, and just the whole focus on their business model, you know, changing it in order to survive. I'm just just makes me wonder to what extent consumer participation has been sacrificed. Mm. Well, advocacy has been sacrificed. Or advocacy, yeah. Advocacy is, is sacrificed. It's virtually, we're going to do this thing. And I mean, you know, I'm not saying that having a regional plan for mental health and suicide prevention isn't a good thing. It's a great thing. It's the way that then a certain group of people that have control of this and then they're, none of them represent any of these marginalised communities. And they're going to tell us how they're going to do this. And it's like they're... You know, basically, I feel like I'm going in there if I was to attend. It'd be like going to the doctor and then the doctor doesn't want to know what you're feeling or doesn't want to actually give you a checkup. They just tell you, blah, 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 here, take this and out the door. This is how we're going to deal with you. And yeah. it, there's something subtly abusive about it, which I, I, I can't find the words, but there's a sense of disempowerment yes. uh, about that way of doing business yeah. which uh, is really deeply deeply concerning for me and I'm really worried about where where our sector is going and uh, why it's like this I don't know whether you've experienced this Jeff as a clinician whether or not you've experienced to sort of uh, being left out and not brought round the table uh, to yeah. be consulted with because I would have thought that in in those good old days uh, as Doris was talking about, we're all so excited and enthusiastic about yes. con working together with consumers, it was carers, an and clinicians. Of, of ideas, whereas now you know everything is quantified because yes, your time that's right. is money. It's quantified. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think, and it's in one of the interminable number of papers that I'm writing. But one of one of the ones that we've been writing about at the moment 
and it relates, the general principles relate, we're talking about medical, political professional organisations, but the same principles apply to other non-governmental organisations and some of the understandings are common that the majority of non-governmental organisations include things like our college's psychiatrists and the AMA and NGOs that provide care and support have become uh, corporatized and then in a sense there's a professional staff who are bureaucratized and the two of these factors lead potentially to a concentration of power among certain individuals who are the executive members of the organization and that concentration of power is certainly vulnerable to oligarchy and the influence of special interests uh, because of that heavy concentration of power which is in the business structure of the organization. And we've seen drops in engagement with medical, political, and professional organizations as a result of that because, in a sense, it seems there's a, albeit elected, but a sort of aristocracy that represents people. And they're, in that sense, if they have goodwill and they seek uh, input from people, then it can be effective, but because they are smaller governing bodies, they're much more prone to this concentration of power and influence. So that, for argument's sake, the chairman of the chairperson of the board or even the CEO of an organisation could, in fact, in a sense, take over. And that's that's been a structural concern that is a factor, I think, in 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 how organizations have been working with the professionalization of all a variety of NGO organizations now into sort of corporate structures and whether that's really suitable is is something that we've expressed concern about because a broader representation is more democratic it's often chaotic as uh, I've had experience before when volunteering in such organizations but it gives a truer voice to what people are experiencing and and I think that that's, that's certainly a concern because we're also dealing with, in this space, uh, corporatized, bureaucratized, and in a sense, um, concentrations of power in the NGOs that are successful. Yeah, and then you've also got that divide within the organization of the concentration of power and then the staff underneath who I, I, I don't mean to critique the NDIS because I know that it's done so much good for so many people you know, across Australia, but the, when you think about the, the impact it's done on the uh, staffing of those organisations, the uh, D, almost like a deprofessionalisation, um, so many good people yes. have left because you know, their uh, take-home salary has decreased. It's... it's so you've got people who leave who've got a, a cert four or um, a diploma, and you've got new people coming in with maybe a cert two or a cert three. Yes. And then they don't stick around um, because there's not that commitment to to stay and to develop their career. It's it's um and it's all contingent upon them being successful in uh, securing uh, clients. You know, for the uh, NDIS, those individual support packages and holding on to them. And if they don't, the the staff, you know, they they're kind of working to sort of like meet a certain quota of clients. If if clients move away from them, maybe they'll let the staff member go. It's it's a it's a much more cutthroat environment, I think, for the community sector. And in a way, on that lower level, I'm I'm not surprised that there's a maybe not the same sense of community that there was, uh, and commitment to stay in the sector as what it was uh, maybe 20 years ago. That sort of I'm I'm not thinking of the word, but it's almost like a deprofessionalisation uh, of the sector. Yeah, there's a disenfranchisement of the actual people been working at the, the coalface and with the appropriate qualifications and experience That's because it, the yeah. organizations become in a sense subordinated to whatever the business aims yes. in a sense are of the organization that is to recruit new clients into the service yep. and it loses sight of the whole ethos of the organization yeah that's right and we talked about a little bit about that is where then workplace bullying can occur with people who are struggling with the clash of values and with management who are um, potentially 
you know, pushing a, a different agenda than the one that is, as you say, the ethos that should be adopted or should is the is the vision statement of the organisation, but it's not actually occurring, and so people find themselves in a situation where they they're there working, feeling that they're there to heal and care, and uh, finding that there's a different agenda altogether, which is one that um, doesn't sit right with them themselves. So um, I'm just wondering. Yeah, you asked on your about how it could influence healthcare organisations, and that's certainly one of the concerns that we've had in across the board in in health practice and as professionals is that at some levels as we teach as I teach our medical students medicine is very simple it only exists to serve people the community yet when we're working in these larger organizations where we have levels of bureaucracy and I'm not criticizing all levels of it, but where you have a professional administrative class, they can have very different aims from frontline care. And it relates to the power balance between those professional people, uh, and this includes peer, the peer workforce working at the coalface with people, mm-hmm. and they have the power differential because the purse strings, by far and large, are held by the professional administrative class whose remit as far as they are concerned, appears to be reporting to their higher-level administration, and it's about particular business measures which have been placed on all healthcare systems, that this uh, business operation grafted on and now a part of all healthcare services. It watches particular targets like numbers of services, but doesn't necessarily look at quality measures which are of the person's experience in the health system Mm. and are the most relevant uh, and longer-term outcomes. Mm. It looks at occasions of stay. It looks at how long people stay. And then, in a sense, these targets are then enforced upon clinical staff and used potentially as a professional stick to beat people to say to them, well, these people are staying in the hospital too long. You need to discharge them. But, of course, any, any clinician will say, we care people, we don't give them a predetermined length of stay in hospital. It's about the appropriate care. But that can be very hard for the younger younger professionals and uh, clinicians to be involved in a service where the power rests with the administrative class, who has very different targets to meet mm-hmm. that are in relation to what the administration has determined as the inputs and outputs of the system. Mm-hmm. And it fell again. It fails to address the ethos that uh, anything that has a health in it and is a health service is, you know, axiomatically, it's a health service. It's for people. It's not for business operations. It should be sound on a business basis, but it's not a business in and of itself. It's. It sounds very, very dysfunctional, Jeff. And I, I, I know from uh, the conversations that we've had previously, it's very hard for people in those roles to reach out and speak out because they are employed by a public health body. Yes. And that means that they are effectively silent and, of course, then we see people suffering and, and really struggling and, and uh, leaving leaving those workplaces, which is really sad for those people living with a, a mental illness or who are in need of care. And it just makes me wonder, and I wonder what your thoughts are about the the role then of our leaders, because if we're talking about achieving this greater access for all, uh, which is the World Health uh, Federation for Mental Health's goal uh, as part of World Mental Health Day as that theme, the role of our politicians, people who are in those positions in ministries that oversee the the bureaucracy and the funding, what are your thoughts, or Doris, what are your thoughts around the particular role that those persons need to have? You're talking about our governments? I'm talking about people who are elected into these roles and who have an oversight of ensuring that that our services aren't dysfunctional and that uh, people working within them uh, feel that they can speak up or that they can ask for uh, the sorts of resources and 
without concern about being wrapped on the knuckles? Well, I think that uh, you're sitting between a rock and a hard place because you've got these ideals, greater investment and greater access, but then you've got your your, your budget, your bottom line, <laughs> and uh, it's you're, you're between a rock and a hard place. And um, Jeff, I was just listening to you know your comments about delivering a health service and yes. and wanting to give the best possible care and yet you've got somebody there watching over saying well you know this person really needs to be discharged because yes. they've been here for so many days and we've got bed bed demands i mean yes it, it's a very they they themselves have got a pretty hard role to play too i imagine but i mean i've got first-hand experience of someone very close to me being admitted to an adult mental health unit five times in six months and then being yes. discharged after, you know, a few days until the person actually then tried taking their life and yes. and then tried taking their life again while in the health unit and then they finally kept that person in. But in the meantime, what happens is... For that person who needs the care and gets discharged because for a range of reasons, and it could be bed demand, but there's a lot of trauma that occurs Absolutely. along that journey for the person who's going through that experience and also their loved ones. So, And you know, based on my own research that looked at the historical policy journey, for want of a bit of a word, back in the days when we would send unwell people to Kenmore Hospital... Mm -hmm. um, to the Richmond report, the review into institutionalised yes. uh, institutional care in New South Wales and then the opening up of the asylums and discharging people into the community. And uh, there have been a lot of improvements along the way, but there's been so much heartache and we still don't seem to have got it right. That tension between you know keeping people in hospital and and giving people freedom and uh, recovery in the community yes I'm, i think i'm going off on a bit of a tangent at the moment but not necessarily i, I agree with you it, it is a, it is an issue yeah well that's why i was saying i mean if if this is about leadership political yes, leadership if people yeah. are voted into these roles and we've got another election coming up and i don't want to be political but I'm just asking the question, isn't the onus on the person who is voted into that, uh, that policy portfolio to yes. ensure that they're not just, that they're really properly informed? They're yes. not just taking on board the, the siloed voices of those who have the, a place at the table, that yes. they actually seek out the voices of others who perhaps aren't invited to those tables. And that they ensure that they really do understand about what's happening in, in a service, particularly the public service, yeah. and about the impact upon uh, those, particularly the staff, but also the outcomes for patients. I think we've discussed in the past the coronial reform process here and how it, it fails in terms of actually actions being undertaken on recommendations or issues that of failing that occurred in, in various incidents where somebody may have taken their life or have uh, been. And I, th I see that as absolutely appalling. What my concern is that, that we have really good leadership in those roles and that people who are stepping into that space are actually fully, not just taking the easy road in terms of access to information, but are actually sourcing information more broadly and from different voices. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that there are issues and I would emphasise that the concerns that I have are about systemic issues, about, in a sense, the professionalisation of an administration and separation from the, the, the clinical health professionals. And it's, the intent is to look at that as a systemic issue, not to criticise particular individuals that's just not helpful but, of, of course, a professional administrative class reports to the ministerial level or higher level, uh, administer, you know, ministerial level staff. And that is, in a sense, ultimately, as far as we can see in our system, related to how we have leadership of our 
health services in relation to, to, the, to the government. But some of it gets beyond my expertise in relation to how you, in relation to political representation and effective leadership, because that is a broader issue for society as a whole. And what's evident is that with the professionalization of administration and the, the, the business operations being paramount in the ways in which health services are considered, there isn't the involvement of people with, me with a mental illness, uh, carers and the community, as well as the clinical health professionals in the high levels of governance of the organization. That, to be admitted, would be quite a challenge to include people in, the, in that, but previously at least we had some clinical health professionals involved in the administration so that we could feed back to people. But as time you know, as time has passed, and certainly in my experience now, nearly 30 years as a, as a doctor, it's been more and more professionalized to uh, administrative bureaucracy who are not necessarily clinical. And even if people are clinically trained, they now operate, operate to business principles. And that makes it very hard to communicate the problems that we're facing day to day, especially when, because of the political exposure of difficulties with the mental health system, suicide, all, uh, and, you know, the bushfires, they're very politically sensitive. So in one sense, it appears that if the professionalized administrative class can manage things to the satisfaction of the minister, whatever is going on at the coalface doesn't seem to matter. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's a grave concern. Yeah. I wonder whether we should change tack and talk a little bit about mental health and COVID. Yep. And I know that you recently did a presentation, was that to the AMA, Jeff? Yes. And it's yes. certainly something that's uh, included in the World Federation for Mental Health's document that's been put out for World Mental Health Day and the directions there and the acknowledgements about the issues with of this year in particular of the impact of COVID-19 on mental health and well-being. Yes, so one of the broader issues, of course, we've had the COVID-19 after, certainly in the local region, the bushfires, and people were understandably concerned about the bushfires, and it was also pervasive in that you had smoke uh, throughout the region, and people's homes, lives, and livelihoods were under threat. And similarly, COVID-19 has come close on that. Plus, because we get the majority of our information via media, there's been blanket media coverage, which is necessary so that people can become informed, but it can become an unrelenting wall of uh, ongoing vicarious, in a sense, distress that people experience because they can hear about. Uh, and I, I remember patients describing to me using apps to detect fires, but they were getting alerts about fires in an entirely different state, but it was still distressing because they didn't know whether it was a local one or a distant one until they looked at the app. And that sort of being on that alert is extremely wearing and, and of concern with the risk of de developing traumatic stress symptomatology. And so one of the important messages that we've tried to emphasize through the AMA is about clear communication from the government and a reliable source of information because there is, on an ongoing basis, blanket coverage, but there's also a lot of misinformation. And because of the issues relating to COVID and the bushfires affect the whole of society and media has so much possibility of a coverage, you can get anyone weighing in for any particular reason, no matter how lacking they are in specific knowledge or expertise. And this is very confusing for the general public and contributes to general anxiety. But also the lockdown measures and social hygiene measures have, have affected people's ability to socially interact, which has been of grave concern as well. And people having to work from home to develop new routines of work-life balance, because when you're at your home and you've got the, you know, you're, you're connected to work, you could work all the time. And, and that's been something that's been expressed to me at times by uh, patients I've looked after that uh, they just couldn't see an end to the boundaries that they had these expectations of, of work all the time. So adequate rest time, uh, adequate breaks and, and, and having time, but also people who, who've been put out of work and getting adequate support 
financially so that and that's a that's been a factor in relation to affecting mental health so there's a lot of factors and still in background we need to continue to adequately fund and resource mental health services across all sectors including you know NGO and NDIS so that people can continue to access services as they are able and uh, it it's been a challenge because of course with bushfires and covid most of the focus reasonably has been on the initial threat and other related factors such as mental health come somewhere down the list in terms of the considerations mm. and that's i think to some extent reflected in how particular initiatives have been funded in response to uh, the bushfires and covid-19 is that off the shelf solutions when you when you're time poor and you're trying to make decisions and i'm not excusing it i'm just explaining what's going on from what i could see there there there's things that it appears that the governments at various levels pick up you've got a package you address the need as you see fit and there isn't time from their viewpoint and i'm again not necessarily endorsing this to hear the voices of people's concerns mm. doris yes anya <laughs> just wonder whether you had any comment no uh, look i i appreciate what what jeff's been saying i've um had my own experience with uh, covid i lost my job and but i was fortunate enough to get a get a job it's I completely agree i mean it's for the very first time in my life being uh finding myself unemployed because of the pandemic it was quite a, an experience and uh it can be at at my age 62 i've wondered whether i would ever be able to get another job and whether that was it whether i needed to just pull in all my super but i think canberra's not a bad bad place in terms of uh, i think our unemployment rate isn't too bad i i was fortunate enough to get more work and uh, so but it, it yes it's it's affected all of us but in very different ways mm Yeah, well, I think I think we all know that COVID has actually had such significant impacts but as with this radio show is to ensure that multicultural communities have access to information and that is and I've said this in previous mm. shows about the lack of access to information for people from multicultural backgrounds and, and I mean it really has highlighted all the deficits that were already there in the system and this is why I, I question why on earth there hasn't been any uh, at this point of recording no announcements about dedicated funding to in- ensure and and fill those gaps of uh providing people access don't people who migrated to this country deserve just the same sort of support or access to supports and uh, to help them to understand where they can get support i mean i noticed that there's a, a new directory heartchat.com.au which is helping Australians seeking mental health support to find a professional who speaks their language or shares their culture or faith. I mean, I can really relate to that because I've got a, a, a although I speak English, I have a particular faith, and at the moment my faith has people like Cardinal Pell being released from <laughs> the prison and and gone back to Rome, which is deeply spiritually disturbing for me. And some of us we need to be able to speak uh to someone who really understands the context of those deep deep spiritual conflicts that we're having so it's not just about being able to speak a person's language but that's obviously very helpful if if you're not fluent in english but this is a a new service which i think is is come out of uh melbourne which is fantastic and so what was it the name again it's called heartchat.com.au Okay. And it it helps you find a professional who speaks your, their language. And I know you understand this Jeff because I know that you come from a, a diverse cultural background yourself. Yeah. Um and that th- these things are important and I hear the in Canberra one of the things that really annoys me is I hear people saying oh the people who have owned the space saying oh well we've been told that uh, people don't necessarily want to come to somebody of their own cultural background because we have smaller communities but mm. really largely that's nonsense and it's just an excuse not to fund something because people do have better outcomes when they are able to speak to somebody who understands 
that can speak their language and, and understands that perhaps they don't have words in their own cultural language that for for mental health. So it's, it's so incredibly complex, but it, this has come from a community. And this is the thing. It's these little projects coming up from the community that often actually really address those gaps for people in the community. And I found this article, which I posted up to the Transforming Perceptions page. It's actually, uh, it was on SBS. So it's really good that SBS keep us well and truly informed about this. Yeah, I mean, just thinking, reflecting a little bit more about what you've just speaking uh, about, another way that COVID's impacted on me is, of course, in how I get to visit my mother, who's got advanced dementia, and her first language is German. And for a while there, we, you know, we couldn't visit the um, aged care home. And now, fortunately, we can. But the way that we now, relatives and friends, visit loved ones is we all have to visit in a, a very large room. It's like a large hall and uh, strict, you know, 1.5 metre, you know, the social, the physical distancing and I have to wear a mask and, you know, sanitize, sanitize my hands. But I go in there and I, I read in German to my mother because I'm not sure how much she still understands. But I sort of figure it can't, it can't hurt to talk to her in German because she's lost a lot of her speech. She can't walk and she's bedridden. And one thing that I do feel sad about, and this is because of COVID, is I can't touch her. Um, mm. and I would love to hold her hand or stroke her forehead or maybe even just rub a little bit of her favourite fragrance, you know, lavender, in, into her hands and I can't touch her and that, it breaks my heart and I'd love to play her favourite music because I sort of think smell and sound, you know, maybe they're still there and maybe you can enlighten me, Jeff, but I, yep. I feel... You know, maybe I'll play one song for her, but, you know, I'm conscious that I'm surrounded by other people visiting their relatives and I don't want to disturb them. So it's very awkward. It's really awkward visiting my mother and during what's quite likely her, you know, her last months when communication is down to... It's, it's you just grab what you can and you try and do what you can, but it's... Just that touch, you can't touch your loved one. Mm. So that's that's a big impact. Yeah, and I, I understand, Doris. It's it's a it's a grave concern that in the order to protect people from COVID nineteen aged care facilities, very different facilities have taken different measures, generally in the best interest of patients. But because of the structural problems that exist with the aged care facilities, the nature of the spaces they have, and the way they were designed and funded. Yeah. It isn't fit for purpose for that personal interaction with and, and also the important part, as you said, of personalised contact, sound, music, touch, uh, and that is so meaningful. And one of the you know one of the important measures that has come out of the good nursing-related research in relation to care for people with dementia is that tactile smell, music are ways in which we can reach and soothe the person and also trigger memories that are hopefully positive. Yeah. And so the problem has been systemic and we were going to originally talk a little bit about the aged care system, but again, in one brief summary, the problems with COVID-19 have exposed the existing structural flaws yes. that have existed for more than 30 years mm. with Australia's aged care system that it's essentially outsourced, it's Commonwealth-funded, but outsourced with very little oversight of the individual facilities, huge variability in systemic approaches. And the difficulty with COVID-19 is that it did need a systemic approach, but there wasn't necessarily a systemic level of governance of aged care facilities, which were still essentially Commonwealth government-funded, but because they're situated in each state, it's actually, in one sense, not necessarily even practical for the Commonwealth to try and watch what is going on. I'm not excusing anyone. I'm just saying that the practicalities are that, you know, each state is very different in the way and they can apply their own legislation. Uh, for example, uh, my understanding is that Victoria was one of the few states that actually had a mandated nurse-to-resident ratio. 
but right. still they face major systemic issues with aged care. Mm. Mm. We, we, we may have to put off our discussions about sure. uh, discussing the recommendations just given the time, but uh, I know certainly in, uh, people can download the uh, Aged Care and COVID Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety uh, report. Uh, recommendation 2 does uh, speak to visitors and quality of life, which Joris has mentioned there briefly. But perhaps we can talk about this again in another time and, and really fully dive into this because it has been a topic that we've covered for a long time on this show and uh, it would be really good to hear from both of you about and Doris bringing the lived experience of that to the discussion. It's really something, I know it's been, yes, I can see. Yes, I understand, Doris. I and I think I think back to my mum and my gran who were in, who had Alzheimer's. So I understand it's it's must it's must be terribly difficult for carers at this point in time. But uh, I just want to thank you both so much for the time that you've given today to discuss these really concerning topics. I'm sorry we haven't got anything. Happy. We haven't had anything really happy to say about about it. Should be. We'd be grateful for the money that's been given to various organisations and say thanks for that. But uh, thanks for having an an online opportunity to discuss it. Perhaps that's a thing. It's been great chatting with you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Well, likewise. Thank you, Doris. Thank you, Anya. And yes, I'm more than happy to talk about aged care issues in in another session. Yeah, so thank you both 